Hello, welcome to Creating Portland. I'm your host, Pearson Coons, and on this podcast, I'll be interviewing progressive creators who are using their art to shape the culture of our city and beyond. I hope you enjoy this episode of Creating Portland. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm excited to have you listening today because we have a very cool guest on the pod, and their name is Max Voltage, and they're a lifelong Oregonian, a non-binary queer artist, activist, creating and producing grassroots queer art in Portland for over 19 years, including a drag troupe, a diverse dance ensemble, a one-person show about gender, a sci-fi musical, and a time-traveling boy band. Whoa, I'm so excited to get into all that. Max uses storytelling, humor, music, dance, drag, pop culture, costuming, props, camp, and satire to create accessible, entertaining musical theater centering underrepresented voices and inspiring the imagination. Welcome to the pod, Max. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, we are so excited to have you. And we will just jump right on into the big question, which is how are you and your art helping to create Portland? Absolutely. Well, I think my bio answers that question a little bit, but I'll... Yes, it does. <laughs> um, yeah, just... Being a longtime Portlander and a lifelong Oregonian, mm. I am very connected to Portland and the culture here and the community here. And it's so important to create spaces and to create art and opportunities to really let the community express themselves and have that access mm. to art. So that's been a huge um driver for me i think originally so my first sort of performance um work in portland was a drag troupe with my um, drag queen brother um devin m and we had a, dro- a drag troupe called uber gay cabaret love it and <laughs> kings queens and in-betweens was our tagline uh. um and we also won the San Francisco Drag King competition. So this was okay. like in the early aughts, it was like 2003, 2004. And it was, it was like, I just wanted a stage. I just wanted to perform. And I realized very quickly that in order to have the space I wanted, I had to create it myself. Like it wasn't mm. there. It wasn't there, right? There wasn't like a lot happening at that point in Portland. It was like the really like mainstream drag and gay bars but there wasn't that gender bendy queer Mm. drag and and there was barely even like a queer scene yet you know it was um i mean i think it if i think it's cycles i think it's cyclical but um so i started producing shows and kind of just learning on the fly how to book a venue and you know we we often wouldn't have a whole show's worth of content. So we started like, okay, what burlesque performers do we know? And what other drag performers? We had um, Jinx Monsoon was in a show of ours at one point. Like, you know, it was just like (gasps) old Portland. Like it was, yeah, you know, like just a bunch of like baby queers making drag and, you know, thrift shop costumes and duct tape 
cardboard glue guns, you know, just DIY, the whole thing. So that's just definitely how I got started in producing shows Um, and sort of also then creating space for other people too, to be like, I want this space, but wow, there's all these amazing, talented people all around us who also are like hungry for that. So that just definitely, I feel like, I, and I've just kind of gone from there. So, and then ha- as I grow as an artist, I create spaces that I want to see and then tend to, mm. you know, attract other artists to me um, who also have those skills or who have that talent, um, who are drawn to that and create space for them as well. Um, and I, I do, as as I've grown and as I've learned, I also try to put a lot of intention into really reaching out to people and curating more intentionally in terms of who I'm collaborating with or who I'm featuring in terms of really highlighting underrepresented queer voices and making Mm. sure that I'm using my privilege um, in that way to really share, share the spotlight and share the stage. So it was, it sort of started as I can't be in every number and I need a costume change. So I know meet other people. (laughs) And now it's sort of become more of a a deeper philosophy that counterbalances sort of my privilege as a white person. And the fact that I have all these skills and not everyone wants to like put together a budget or write a grant or, I mean, not that I like super want to, but I I see the necessity for it and I know how to do Mm. it. And I really hone those skills. So I'm able to, do that almost as sort of a service to my community. Yes, I love, love, love that. I'm a producer myself for the film side of things. Nice. And yeah, it is, it's not glamorous, but it is an art in itself to get all of those numbers figured out in a way that actually brings something into light. And I love what you said earlier too. I think it's definitely a danger in the queer community, particularly the white queer community. And I'll be honest, the white gay community of thinking, okay, this thing is queer, so we're good. We have the diversity. It's already revolutionary. It's already, just because we queers are doing it, it's already so provocative, which is maybe true to a certain extent, but there is so much diversity within the queer community itself that needs to be uplifted, and I love that you're putting that at the forefront. Thank you. And so what does that look like for you to to curate that space? As you're talking about inviting other people, is there any sort of other... What's that process like to ensure that the diversity is represented in your queer events? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think I hit a, I hit a bit of a wall when I was curating. So I had a, a cabaret series called Ho Momentum that ran for three years. It started at the E Room and then um, ended at the Fez Ballroom. None of these venues exist anymore. Okay, I was here. Yeah, so it's it's challenging. So many of the venues that I loved working with just don't even exist. I think Mm. there's like condominiums there now, Um, (laughs) but um, it was really um, started out as like, okay, who do we know? Who are our friends? You know, what can we put on stage? Um, And I started out with a, a event production partner for the first year, and then and then that partnership ended, but. So then I was the the next two years, you know, doing it alone, emceeing it, producing it, curating it and and booking about 10 acts per show and having a show every month. So it was just this like wow. massive amount of work. I look back, I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe I did that. Um, <laughs> and it was just this massive amount of work. And then there was a sort of I would have contracts with performers around, OK, if there's violence, check in. 
first before putting mm. violence on the stage. If you're performing a culture that isn't yours, like that's mm. not all right. Like, like we need to have, or if there's any gray area, like let's check in. And so as, as I got more sophisticated, I sort of created these contracts and these really explicit um, agreements mm. around like what, what I wanted on my stage. And, you know, there was like pushback, like don't censor me, that kind of thing. I'm like, I'm not censoring you. I'm, I'm creating a stage and I'm creating a brand and I'm creating an anti-oppression queer space. And I'm not inviting you in there if you don't fit into what I want to do and the politics that this space is. So, you know, there was drama, there was conflict, there was struggle. Um, and there were moments like there were things I missed. And there are things that there were like, there was a number that got on stage that then I got pushed back from the community. And I think mm. that that was like sort of at the end of the third season. And at that point, I was pretty burnt out already on event production. I was sort of coming to the end of that mm -hmm. and had this idea to write Ho Momentum, the musical that was kind of inspired by my community and by the themes that we had done mm -hmm. in the cabaret and that grassroots energy. Um, so I was sort of headed off in this other direction, but, um, I also realized like as a white person, like I'm going to miss things. Mm -hmm. I'm going to miss things, right? Because my lived experience and my privilege and as hard as I work to do that work and to challenge my privilege and to read articles and, you know, surround myself with people that will, you know, help me learn as well and tell me when I'm off track, like I'm going to miss stuff. And so I think that was why when I formed Turnback Boys, um, it was really important to me. And I did a lot of work specifically reaching out to communities of color and queer communities of color saying, like, I really want folks of color in this project and not like just like I'm handing you a script and here's your part and here's your role, but as in like, this is a collaborative musical theater ensemble, right? We each are creating our own characters. We are each telling the story that we want to tell. So I'm not telling you what, what era you have to be from or anything. We're in this like sort of together creatively. And then I'm the one that's like booking the shows and like updating the website and like, you know, doing that band management stuff, super glamorous. But like making sure that like we have multiple folks of color in in the room when the content mm -hmm. is being created is so important. And then also just having um, I did this with Home and the Musical, making sure you are able to do a read through, you know, making sure you have people in the audience that are part of those communities to to say, hey, this rubbed me the wrong way, or like, let's talk about this, and we had a little talk back afterwards, and just again, like being aware of our of our of our blind spots, you know, being aware mm -hmm. that we don't know everything, and we're not going to catch everything, and doing the work to figure out how to still, I mean, to I still want to make work, you know what I mean? Like I had this right. moment where I was like, oh, it's so hard to like still figure out how to make radical anti-oppression radical queer art as a white person and and feel good about it so this is sort of the this is where i've gotten to but it's definitely nice. been a journey <laughs> yeah oh i resonate with a lot of what you're saying there geez 
But yeah, and it sounds like the key thing there too is just being so open to that feedback and being open to adjusting the piece because of that. I think a lot of artists hold their art so sacred that feedback and criticism and adjusting for other people, like you were saying earlier, they would consider it censorship or like being tamped down in some way. When in reality, it's just, it's making it available to more people and it's making it so that your audience can be even bigger. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, you have your your artistic hand in so many different pots, it sounds like, which is so exciting to get to our second segment, which is what is what are you loving about the Portland art scene? What's working really well? Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you have a really cool grasp on what's working there. And then what is maybe where we need to improve? We need to get some more work in. Yeah. It's, it's funny because I'm so... I am so Portland, like I, and I don't like always realize it until I like leave Portland and people are like, oh my God, you're so Portland. And I'm like, wait, what did I say? Like, I, <laughs> what, why? Um, so I was reflecting on this. I was like, what is Portland? I, I think the culture of Portland I love and it, it is very much what my art is, is, you know, at its best, right? Especially like queer radical Portland, where we are questioning everything. You know, we are, mm. we are writing our own rules. We are in, embracing our eccentricities. We are queer and gender bending. We are polyamorous and kinky. We are femme and, you know, like we are pushing boundaries all the time, you know? And we are like, I think that we, we are often on the forefront of those conversations and on those tensions. Um, I also love that Portland, we have so much nature around us. And I think that also is part of the culture of Mm. Portland is this sort of like spirituality, this like very woo, very feelings, very tender, um, Mm. very like witchy into astrology, you know, like those kind of energies as well. Those energies there, that's Portland, you know, that's (laughs) (laughs) the energies. And I think it's hard because I feel like with when Portlandia hit, you know, and then it sort of the culture of Portland sort of became this like cheap sort of punchline. And Mm. and some of them were sort of funny, but like it it was hard. Because it was like, no, but like, it sort of, I feel like it sort of took some of the magic, it was trying to take some of the magic away, in a way, because mm. it's like, by making fun of it. And, and I think we do have a sense of humor about ourselves, but um, I think it's just like, so much of Portland is rolled into my art. It's rolled into who mm. I am. And I'm, I'm like, from here too, I grew up... Um, in the suburbs and I was part of the Metropolitan Youth Symphony and I would like grow up coming up to like Northwest 23rd Avenue with like the cool place to be and like (laughs) the Hawthorne, ooh, what? So, you know, I think as a kid too, I was like, I was like very adjacent to Portland culture too. So Mm. it's, it's almost hard to articulate sometimes because I'm like, it's in my blood, but um, I love it. And I think that I'm constantly like, surprised and delighted by the conversations that are happening here and the art that comes out of the city is amazing and you know there's this there's a tension because it's it was a small city and now it's like not a small Mm. city so 
you know, there, I think there's a lot when you say like what, <laughs> what's hard about Portland, you know, is, um, I think there's a lot of tension there. I think like, I love that Portlanders like just, if you want to make something happen, you make it happen. You don't wait for someone else mm. to like give you permission to do it. I think that's something else that's really beautiful about Portland. Um, and also the fact that like people don't come here to get famous. Like people don't come here like mm. they do in New York and LA to be like, oh, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna make my career in art. But it's full of like so much talent. So it's, it's this other culture that's like really mm. talented, but it's also like doing it for like kind of different reasons maybe than like people that are trying to like make it. Um, right. So I feel like there's a real like grassroots, real like um, integrity to a lot of the art that comes out of Portland. Mm. Wow, I, this is so positive. I'm just like, yes, you're exactly right. And I think it's, especially with this podcast, it's been so easy to critique and like challenge a lot of what's happening in Portland. But I love, love, love to hear those things because you're so spot on. And I haven't heard that sort of explicitly stated about the connection to nature, but it is so true and so tangible. Once you say it, I'm thinking of all these pieces and all of these people that are so reminiscent of that energy like you're saying yeah so and oh. i think we're also like we do have that community connection we do understand community in a way that i think some bigger cities kind of don't have to in the same way so mm. um i love that too but i i definitely have some struggles with portland too you know but what, what let's just... go into those let's <laughs> go into those what <laughs> Where do you think we need to start heading? What do you think we need to start working on within this community that we do obviously have a lot of good things going for us? Yeah. I mean, I think we, it's gotten way harder to be an artist in Portland as someone mm. that's been doing this for almost two decades. It has gotten so much harder and there are so many intersecting reasons behind that. Um, you know, our rent doubled in the amount of, in like three years, in like the late aughts, all of a sudden we were paying twice as much rent, you know? So I think it was this quite sort of queertopia in the early aughts where people weren't mm. having to work that much. We were all working like 20 hour a week customer service jobs and we all had like spending money and we were like spending all this extra time making costumes and thinking about our next, you know, performance number. And it was really, amazing and people wanted we were really hungry for for community there was this like hunger mm. and i felt it in the audience and i felt it in the community and um i think it's hard because you know venues have gone away so many venues are are and queer spaces as well um we you know we lost embers last year um mm -hmm. wait did there was another gay bar that just closed too. Um, CC Slaughter's CC's just, just closed. closed. In I'm like, what? Yeah, which was crazy. Yeah, so it's um, it's really challenging um, because I think that for me as a queer artist, like I would not be the artist I am today if I did not have my drag king community, if I did not have mm. dive bars and shows that were five <clears throat> to ten dollars sliding scale, and you know, dirty queer. 
and things that you could get on stage and as an artist you could develop, you could take risks, you could say, mm. I'm not an artist, but I'm gonna read this poem, you know, and you could really have the opportunity. And I think it's just a lot harder to create those now because there's so many less venues and they're so, we're all hustling constantly. Mm. We're just constantly hustling to just make our rent and just have enough. So I think the, the whole culture, I think, Probably Portland, we were in a little bubble and other big cities were already experiencing that. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden we became like known and then the bubble just kind of burst. So we had this really dramatic for going from this like, you know, small town to a small city to a big city, like practically what felt like overnight. So I think that's been really challenging. And I think for myself, I'm just like, it's really hard to find that balance to have enough time and energy to still make art and still mm. do what I love and also have that stability. So I think it's it's not necessarily Portland specific. It's it's I think it's probably a national problem around um, economics. It's a it's a problem around late stage capitalism and all of us getting squished. And, right. you know, we need universal income. We need student debt forgiveness. We need, you know, local businesses to have support. We need, you know, there's so much, like, help that we collectively need. And I think that artists are getting pushed out of cities a lot of times, too. Right. And because we can't afford it. But then it's like that that was a thing that brought people to the cities in the first place was the, the vibrant art scene. So right it's so frustrating and i don't know it just kind of makes me want to scream <laughs> yeah i feel you totally no yeah and the thing too i think a lot of artists and i'm sure you've experienced this as a producer is that lots of artists don't want the art to be separate from the money want the art to be separate from those sort of economic factors that are going on they just want to focus on their art which makes sense and they should be able to have that kind of focus you're talking about that kind of extra time yeah i think in our sort of capitalistic mindset we're saying you should have a 40-hour work week no matter who you are which for artists in a city like you're saying where making art your total career is not as likely is maybe not possible which is so challenging to grapple with. well and i've so i've worked for a few different um theater companies in portland as well and early on in my sort of creative career i was like maybe i'll start a nonprofit. and the longer i worked in nonprofits, the more i was like hell no i'm not going to mm. do that because you know i think that there can be some exceptions and and i think that there's a lot of conversation there but Overall, right, nonprofits are still having been run essentially by board of directors and board's mm. primary responsibility is fundraising. Okay, so right. your boards are always going to be people with money. Majority of the people on the board are going to have money. And so mm -hmm. you have the, these economic forces in theater companies that steer them toward white people, steer them toward people with money because that's who's paying for the theater company. So it's, mm -hmm. it's these infrastructures of like who actually gets to be professional artists, you have to be able to fit into these constructs of the nonprofit industrial complex. Yeah. You have oh, to be able to fundraise. Dark, real dark. 
And when you're making yeah. art for working class radical queers, that is a right. that becomes a fucking problem. Because I haven't literally mm-hmm. my whole time. I've there's maybe been a couple shows where, but mostly my sliding scale starts at five dollars and always has. Because there are many times in my life where I would not have gone to a show if it was more than $5 because I would not have been able to afford it. Mm. And I want the people I'm making the art for to get to see the art. But my cost of living has have more than doubled. The venue costs have doubled the You know what I mean? So it's like, it's so hard to keep it accessible. Not to mention Mm. the fact that now we have Netflix. Now we have YouTube. Now we have all these ways to be entertained and not leave the house. So I think that that's also a bigger issue with live theater and live performance now competing mm. against all these other, you know, entertaining portals that um, they don't offer community Ugh. in the same way, but man, they're a lot easier to get to. And, and they're starting to have a lot more queer content. So you know, that also ends up being, making it harder, I think, for those of us making live queer shows happen to get people out to the shows. Right. And I mean, it's just totally exacerbated by this whole lockdown, quarantine, pandemic situation where we're literally not allowed to go out to the shows. And what's that going to look like when we are able to? Are people going to want to? How are we going to get them back? How are we going to draw them in after, like you're saying, Netflix and YouTube has been the only option and won them over? Yeah. Oh, that's scary and dark to think about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think this is part of the reason why I've like started taking media classes at Open Signal. And, mm-hmm. you know, the boy band right now, we're recording our first album. Um, and so that means we're, and we've made our first music video and it's funny cause we can't be in the same room, but we, <laughs> we each are just like filming our different parts, you know, and, and editing yeah. them together. Um, so I think for us and for someone that's been so focused on like the live performance stuff, we're using this as a catalyst to really focus a little bit more on creating online content so that we can get like reach a larger audience because we have a pretty solid Portland fan base and a little bit West Coast but Mm -hmm. um just figuring out ways to get our art out there um and on different platforms and stuff that doesn't require the whole the whole event production live show right being in a room with you know 200 other people thing oh yeah it's bleak, but it's the future. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, and then maybe let's let's bring it up just right here at the end. How? What is your dream for the Portland art scene? What is what does a dream scenario look like for Portland art for you? Yeah, whew. I'm. I get in my time machine and I go back to two thousand and four. <laughs> Jk. Um, <laughs> finding finding elements of that again i i think is important Mm. to um to have those live spaces and to have those um rough around the edges um shows Mm. 
and also be able to have a whole spectrum of opportunities for people um, wherever they are in their artist career without necessarily meaning that they have to compete against each other, right? Mm. Um, the amount of grants that are available for individual artists are like kind of I can count on one hand, you know, and just having a lot more grant opportunities that mm. would really fund and prioritize local queer infrastructure and figuring out ways to do like longer term funding to say like oh we believe in this artist and we're gonna actually like fund them for five years to mm -hmm. you know because if you want to do bigger projects like right. i have a i have a dream of a web series and and making my musical into a movie and all these things and it's really you know it's really overwhelming to think about how i'm gonna fund that or how i'm gonna put time aside for that and mm -hmm. also work my day job and be able to have the stability there. So I think I'm like, you know, we have Turnback Boys has a Patreon account. I think that's a really great model. Um, you know, having more folks support artists directly in that way is exciting. It's exciting mm -hmm. that we can reach our audiences directly and not have gatekeepers, right? Like, there's there's some really exciting things about that and, and and with social media we can exchange ideas so well and so quickly and we can really innovate so it's it's mm -hmm. figuring out sort of how to take the best components i think of the the technology as it's innovated and also have that 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 um accountability i think it's really important to be accountable to your community and I think that's why I love local art, because you're like, I'm looking at the people. I'm on the stage. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at you. I can tell if this is going well or not. You know, and I think it's important for people yeah. to have those opportunities to learn as artists to say, wow, that worked and that didn't work. And what I'm what am I learning from that and, and how, how I'm going to try again um, and figuring out. <laughs> I feel like there's this myth of artists that are like the genius artist, right? That's like, mm. that you're just like, you're touched by God. You're like, you have genius. You didn't have to work on it. You're just like, ta-da. And I think, yeah. I think that really undermines what it actually takes to be a talented artist. Absolutely, absolutely. And sort of releases society from any sort of accountability toward helping make good artists. like you we have a choice right do we have venues do we have grant systems do we have you know mm -hmm. rent control do we have you know income do we have ways that people can survive and still make their art and and grow as artists you know to yeah. to become a brilliant artist means you have to spend most of your life doing that right and that's expensive. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> wow. But we can't, the, you know, it's like, then if we only have people with privilege making art, then it's like, exactly. again, it's where we're at with like so much of mainstream media being like so terrible because <laughs> yeah. it's the people with privilege that are making the decisions and they seem to be out of ideas, to be honest with you. And it's like, right. pass me the ball. I'm opened. Like, 
I mm. have so many ideas. I'm ready to have a movie. Right. Multiple television shows are in my head. Yes. I've got yes. a freaking soundtrack back here. I've got a boy band over here. Like, mm. let's do this. Like, someone just passed me the ball. And by the ball, I mean an infrastructure and money and time. You right. know? But some people do get past the ball over and over and over again. And they're right. making mediocre crap. So I don't know what to tell you. Well, that is an incredible way to round us out. Somebody, please, for the love of all that is good, give Max Voltage the ball. I can't believe I just ended on a sports metaphor. That's just I like... I know. That's very straight of you. Very off-brand for me, but... Um. Interesting. Yeah. Um, well, I loved it, and I hope that really resonates with people. It sure did with me. Max, where can people find you online? <laughs> Uh, my website is maxvoltagepdx.com. Most of my creative energy is um, headed into Turnback Boys. That's Turnback Boys with a Z. And okay. turnbackboys.com. And we're also on Instagram and Facebook at Turnback Boys. Mm. Incredible. Well, we will link that in the description. And thank you, thank you so much for being here, Max. Absolutely. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Creating Portland with me, Pearson Coons. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at CreatingPDX or on our website, CreatingPDX.com. This podcast was brought to you by Wolf and Thunder Productions and Golden Pride Productions. See you next time. Bye!